0: Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to another week of The Learning Curve. I had a great week spent with the family on a spring break vacation, and now I'm back with another member of the family. And what is her name? <laughs> the laugh.
1: It's me. Yes. It's me, Gerard Kara. It's me. I'm so glad you had such a nice vacation.
0: It was good. I uh, got a chance to just hang out and do a little uh, canoeing and all that kind of good stuff. So it was fun.
1: Did your canoe tip over at all?
0: I'm it really good I... at
1: making a canoe tip over. Oh, well, well um, done we, you. We,
0: we balanced well. And like I said, that was one part. So now back to the other part of the family, which is uh, what you and I do every week for a Learning Curve.
1: That's right. We have a lot of good time. You even gave us some some Learning Curve time on your vacation. So we're, we're grateful for that. For the calls. So, yeah. <laughs> There you go. You can do it. You can do it from anywhere. So what's, what's on your radar this week, Gerard?
0: So my story isn't a happy one, but it's much more of a cautious one. And this comes from the, in, originally it was in the uh, Heckinger Report, but it also appeared in USA Today on April 8th. And the author is Levi Polkinen. And the title is Suspensions, Handcuffs, Jail, Middle School mm-hmm. Discipline Falls Heavily on Vulnerable Kids. And it's a story about a middle schooler in New Mexico who's at a pep rally in his school. And of course, this was pre-COVID. And people are excited and doing all the things you do at a pep rally. Uh, this student also has a, uh, a special need where he cannot always channel or even hold on to verbal or physical responses. And during part of the rally, he began to jump and shout and move. Well, someone next to him uh, reported to him by saying he was... Kicking this person. And one thing led to another, and ultimately he was suspended for three days from school. Well, a few months later, a scuffle uh, took place, and the report didn't say what happened necessarily, but this netted him one week out of school and a visit from the police to his home. And then further down, you read, and one of the educators mentioned that because school's out, um, that much of the discipline or outreach has moved away from. Educators into police. And in one instance, and this is interesting, the person said in her community, electives and extracurricular activities have been curtailed, and school discipline has been handled by police who make, quote, welfare checks, unquote, on students who miss online classes. So I begin to think that I've heard <sighs> some stories about this, none personally, but through my network about people who actually have been visited by law enforcement in terms of. Why why aren't your kids in school? Now, we do know that even in school, through truant officers and other time, other uh, authorities, this will happen. But again, wonder, you know, how is this happening? And is it more prevalent right now that school is out? And for middle middle schoolers, this is something we often forget. Now, as you know, April is Second Chance Month. And it's an opportunity for us to talk about what nonprofit, faith-based, and other groups are doing to help people who are, are adults who have criminal records. Well, doing second chance a month, you've got to remember that many of the people today who are in prison and jail, many of them had run-ins with the law in school. And guess what? A lot of that begins with students who are in middle school. So in fact, uh, when you look at some of the data, uh, middle school is where most American children find themselves having their first interaction with the criminal justice system. I was actually shocked to know that uh, data from the National Juvenile Defender Center actually said that every state in the country allows for the prosecution of children as young as 12. And so I took a look at the report and found out that your state of Massachusetts, my former home state of California, are the only two states who set a minimum age of 12 in which you can actually go uh, after and prosecute a student. But the sad thing is, at least in my opinion, there are 29 states where it's legal to prosecute a five-year-old in oh juvenile court. And when you go down the list of states who, do, who don't allow it, fortunately, Virginia, my home state's not one of them. So i raise this story for two reasons. One, even in a pandemic, we can't forget about middle school students who for physical, psychological, emotional, and as brain science will tell us, are developing in ways that are quite different than when you get to high school. And number two, yes, we have some students who have challenges, but as students are coming back to school, what's going to be our response to students who are excited about seeing their friends who may jump and push and roll and play because they're so excited to be with other people it may be driven by a special need it may not but what are we as adults going to do when we have to listen to other students say hey Gerard pulled my ponytail or hey Gerard pushed me or this instance instance he kicked me when there may be a whole lot of things going on and if we're only going to respond using uh, the juvenile justice response, that could lead to some long-term consequences that we'll have to talk about again fifteen years from now during second chance month.
1: you know, Gerard, there's so wow, so so much in there that you said that just uh, is is sad and and disheartening. Um, just the the idea that, especially, in a time when communities should be caring for one another and, and taking, you know, checking in on each other, like these wellness checks, why isn't your kid online turning into something that is essentially punitive or becomes, becomes a law enforcement issue. And, in to your point, you know, I can't imagine as just as a parent, if I had to take severe disciplinary action, every time my, one of my three children pulled a ponytail (laughs) or yelled at each other without, you know, and there are those moments as a parent, when you do, when you, when you can't take it anymore or when something has to happen, but most of the time, you know, your first reaction, especially with real young kids who are developing is to try and take a step back and it's, you know, the why of the behavior and the why we don't engage in such behavior and how it's an affront to the family or an affront to the community. So it seems that in far too many of our schools, this just basic, you know, sentiment about caring for our children has left us. And that is incredible. That is a shocking statistic that children as young as five in that many states can be. Can be brought up on charges. That's that's absolutely insane to me. Yet I know that you and the the work that you've done, and that so many others have done, really good work on bringing to light not only the the problems with disciplinary systems in schools in general, but the stark inequities and who suffers from these, and what the, what the long term consequences are. Not just for the individual, but for the entire society are huge. Um, so I thank you for bringing this up because I actually feel like um, there was momentum. Um, this conversation around like, wow, school discipline is shockingly uh, egregious in some places and shockingly inequitable, and that sort of got lost when everybody retreated into their homes. Um, but it sounds like uh, this—you are with this article with the story, bringing this back into the spotlight, which I think we really need. To your point, especially as kids go back to school. So, so thank you for that. And I'm going to carry this story with me tonight. I'll tell you what when I'm when I'm correcting my. Four-year-old <laughs> in his behavior. <laughs> um, I've got I've got a different story this week, and it's one that's at home. And okay, so I want to lead with a question, Jared, Are are you a fan of baseball?
0: I am big mm-hmm. LA Dodger fan, and I went to a World Series game in the seventies.
1: Okay. Okay. So I'm, I don't watch baseball. Shh. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm married to somebody from Argentina. So we watch soccer in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I always loved soccer anyway. played it as a kid, but um, I live here, you know, um, <clears throat> outside of Boston. And if I had one team to pick, it would be the Detroit Red Sox because that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, even though I used to live like three blocks from Fenway Park, um, which okay. people think is great. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. If you've been around Red Sox fans on the T, but um, this so this is a story in Boston, and it is about the Red Sox because we have talked about the great exam school debate. It's happening across this country, well, in places that still have these uh, air quotes I use now public schools that require admissions tests to get in. These long-standing, very old exam schools like we have here in Boston and New York, Boston Latin School, mm-hmm. and um, I think as we discussed a couple weeks ago, right? So it without. Without test results, um, the Boston Public School, the Boston School Committee has made a move that could really uh, change what admissions look like at the school. And they've basically said, well, we're going to move to sort of. Um, looking at w- w- within the absence of test scores, we're going to look at admitting, you know, certain proportions of kids, selecting the top students in each zip code. Now, okay. Admittedly, we, we certainly have a fascination and a problem with, and in this country seem to not be able to think outside of the zip code box, which comes with its own problems. Right. But in this situation, it could, it would theoretically, um, ensure a much more diverse class of students coming into these exam schools, which just don't look anything like the other public schools in the district, despite years of saying that we're going to try and make them. Because what happens is oftentimes, as I think I've said before, you know, wealthier families will do things like send their kids to private school until they can take the exam school admissions test. And then they're basically getting a free public education after they've not used the the local public schools to which their children might have been assigned, some of which are not that great. Let's be clear. Some of which are, but some of which are not. And so there's this just whole debate of, around what's just and what's not. And a group of parents has, of course, sued because they're very upset that this is an inequitable way to do things. So various definitions of what's equitable in this case, but the Boston Red Sox are weighing in. So the Boston Red Sox have written a friend of the court brief, and they're saying essentially that they are in support of a process. They're trying to work on, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you knew this, Gerard, but Boston and the Red Sox in particular seem to have a really difficult history with race. It's surprising, but they're saying that as they work on their own Issues with their team and a history of, you know, um, using ter- fans using terrible language at the ballpark and deep inequities within just the way the Red Sox team has been run. Um, that they're they're looking to support initiatives that will lead to, you know, more opportunities for kids who haven't had them in this city in the past. And this um, n- will not surprise you that um, some people are pretty upset that uh, a baseball team and its owners, especially uh, because its owners. Tend to live in wealthy suburbs and be those people that do send their children to private schools, would even weigh in on this issue at all. And I'm not even going to give my opinion one way or another. People who know me probably know what it is. Maybe listeners can glean what it is so far, but I just think this is fascinating. And it, you know, it goes right in this line of we're seeing more corporations and sports teams. I mean, think about what happened in Georgia standing up and saying, actually this isn't okay. And so, you know, um, we're, we're not going to play here in Georgia because you're trying to pass voter suppression laws. The Red Sox, not the same, but doing something a little bit more local and lending their voice in support of this one side of the debate um, when it comes to exam schools. And, and as I said, like different consequences to each side, but um, I just find this story really fascinating. The fact that the Red Sox would weigh in at all.
0: Are the Red Sox saying they want to move away from the exam, or are they saying that they support zip code diversity?
1: No, no, support? they're saying they want they want to way they want to get away from the exam, and they're infuriating the parents who have launched the lawsuit. <laughs> so it's um, they are, and they're saying that it's you know the exam, the system ha- as it has been has led to deep inequities in access to these exam schools, which is pretty objectively. True. If you look at demographics, like it's not—it's certainly um, not mm-hmm. open to kids of all zip codes. Now, others will say, "Well, tests are objective," but as I said, if you're a child that's had access to a very high quality of education, you probably have a much better pa- chance of passing the test than the kid that had no choice but to the, but to go to the school that was assigned to them. So it's it's a fascinating debate. This exam school thing has been around for as long as the exam, well, maybe not as long as the exam schools have been around, but for a very long time. And, you know, we'll see if the pandemic up open, if the pandemic opens up uh, a new way of doing things here. I don't know.
0: Well, I'm in support of exam schools, and I say that as someone who could not get into one, even if I would have tried my best when I was a high school student. Um, I believe that there should be schools set aside for people who have not only the certain uh, proclivity, but also interest, also set of courses under his or her belt. Some of it is test taking prep. Got it. Uh, but this, there is to say there is something to say about having schools like that as a part of a menu of opportunities yes. that we can have. And you talked about you know parents and what they can do. I think of an article from the uh, Democracy Journal. It's called Journal of Ideas. And it's from fall t- two thousand thirteen. Richard Reeves, Isabel Sawhill, and Kimberly Howard wrote a piece called "The Parenting Gap," and they basically said, "Listen, middle class families have access to capital, social as well as monetary, and they can simply do things independent of what the system says is right or wrong." And so we're going to work out those nuances. Um, I'm going to stand in defense as it relates to the Red Sox. You know, sports teams have uh, decided to weigh in on a number of issues. You know, one of the reasons why you haven't or did not have in the past um sporting like NCAA tournaments in Mississippi or South Carolina is because they flew the Confederate flag. And yep. there were corporations who spoke about that. And so, you know, for a host of reasons people are doing that now. Um, I don't follow the Red Sox enough to know if this is something new that they're doing or not. I mean I don't know.
1: I, I think it's pretty new. So maybe my um my Red Sox fan fellow Bostonians will correct me, but it feels pretty new. Um and it feels like it's also coming at a time when the Red Sox are having to um burnish their own image, shall, shall we say. They, oh, okay. they they've had problems of their own with regard to uh equity and um and especially listen, Boston's got a huge race, uh, it's a race problem. <laughs> it's got it it's, Just a blatant problem in the city, and some would say with the Red Sox themselves. So um, I could get in trouble here admitting that I (laughs) I don't even watch the games, and here I go. I don't know. Pioneer's going to give me a phone call. Um, But it's an interesting story. So we'll we'll see where it goes. And I am curious to see if these exam schools are going to be forced to uh, really change their admissions processes in the next few years. So...
0: Well, I'm in Virginia, and the same debate is happening at Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax, which is, some would say, the best high school in the country. There's uh, over 60% uh, Asian. And so race, ethnicity, class, dynamics, all in place. So interesting times for us, but I can say that at least what used to be, well, I guess the football team now, the Washington uh, football team, I don't know if they've weighed in, and I don't know if the – the uh, Washington baseball team is weighed in. But uh, I will I will check this out and follow it with some interest.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Well, you know, coming up, Gerard, we're going to be talking to a guy that could probably write the book about this. And maybe he should. We Maybe we should give him this idea. But we've got plenty more to talk about. We're going to be talking with Jay Matthews of The Washington Post about his latest book and the many others that he has written right after this. Listeners, we are back with someone who many of you, I'm sure, know and have certainly read. Jay Matthews is an education columnist for The Washington Post and WashingtonPost.com. His column appears once a week. He's been with The Post 50 years and is the author of 10 books, including five about high schools and a New York Times bestseller, Work Hard, Be Nice. Great book. It's about the birth and growth of the KIPP Charter School Network. He is the biographer of Jaime Escalante, the most influential U.S. teacher of the last 40 years. His book, Question Everything, explores the nation's largest college prep program, AVID. And he recently authored An Optimist's Guide to American Public Education, a title that I really want to learn more about because I wish that on the learning curve, we were um, sometimes more optimistic about it. <laughs> American public education. So welcome to the show, Jay Matthews.
2: Thank you very much, Kara.
1: Yeah, we're excited to have you here. Okay, let's let's dive right into this new book. So an optimist guide to American Public Education. I really want to know everything we should be optimistic about because it's a nice sunny day outside and we need some optimism. Um, but it so in the book you outline three larger trends in K to 12 schooling that give you cause for hope. Uh could you talk a little about, about these three trends, and and also tell us, like, what was the inf- inspiration for writing this book in particular?
2: Thanks, Sarah. Uh, I'm a real odd duck amongst reporters in general, not just education reporters. Um, you know, I got started as a reporter, particularly at the Post, writing about schools, uh, usually reporters look for bad stuff, you know, headlines, scandal, malfeasance. Uh, it occurred to me that I didn't want to do that. I'm an optimist personally, and I wanted to write about what good things were going on in schools, find the best schools, the best teachers, and show people what we should be striving for. So that's been my ruling um, mission all the time. I've been an education writer for the last 40 years. And when I got to writing this book, I had several ideas, but they quickly coalesced into looking at the things that are really going well, and particular with this terrible Pandemic. What has done? What it has done to schools? What are the three things that we can most rely on to take us to a near era, new era, in which things will be better? Um, they shake down as to uh, these are all important and interesting because none of them are are buzzwords. None of them have great money behind them. They're all things being done by teachers, uh, not by uh, professors or or education sectors. Well, number one is the um, growth in the Uh, uh, opening of advanced courses in high school, particularly advanced placement and international baccalaureate, college-level courses, opening those courses up to ordinary and sometimes below-average students. That's a great movement that is getting very little coverage. And we're finding that such students uh, blossom by giving given a challenge. They may not pass their final exam, but they're doing much better in college having had that experience. Number two, uh, the growth of a certain kind of charter school, where they're a bit lots of arguments about charters. I'm focusing on the charter the charter networks that have grown unusually large and have been unusually successful because they focus so uh, relentlessly on how much kids are learning and how good their teachers are teaching. Um, uh, there aren't very many of them, but those that are have reached that level and the ones I talk about are really exciting and I tell the stories of how they got that way. And last, and this one surprised me as I was thinking through all the other things About schools that I was happy about, it occurred to me that progressive education, that's different than progressive politics, by the way. Progressive Mm -hmm. education is a philosophy of education that's been around for more than a century. There's a philosopher and psychologist named John Dewey at Columbia who was famous for pushing it and the idea into education. And the idea is schools should be uh, not just about things to learn, but about how the things that you're learning about relate to. Uh, your own life and to the, the, the life of your country and to what's going on in the world at that time. Uh, and I found all kinds of, uh, every t- I've been in schools, you know, lots of, lots of schools, and I found in almost every school I've attended, even schools that aren't really good, there's usually at least one or two teachers who are pursuing progressive education, letting kids do projects, letting kids experience what's going on in their local communities in ways that really make education exciting. So those are my, my three uh, touch points.
1: I, I love that. I especially, um, I, I- eager to read more about the the charter schools that you highlight especially because for i think for a long time um and the first maybe 10 15 years of the charter school movement the question was always you know well can these organizations scale and and one of the things that that we've seen is there there are some absolutely phenomenal charter school organizations operating lots of schools and doing really well by kids but but Jay, I want to pick up on something that you said right at the beginning and that is you identified these ideas they're really you know Coming from teachers, they're not coming from states. They're not coming from commissioners. They're not coming from ed schools. Uh, used to work in one, and often felt like there there was a dearth of <laughs> of novel ideas there. Can you talk a little bit more about um, you know w- when you're looking at some of these ideas, these trends? Um, how did you identify that these were coming from from teachers? Was it observational or just well, pretty
2: obvious? Uh, the first. Uh- Uh, development, first of the three um, positive developments, the rise in the number of kids uh, who are being challenged and given college-level courses in high school, that began uh, in a big way with uh, a teacher in East Los Angeles named Jaime Escalante. They did a movie about him. I wrote a book about him. He uh, proved that kids from very low-income environments could do college-level calculus and do well uh if yeah. given enough time and encouragement to tackle those programs And in 1987 that high school which 85% of the kids were low low income kids almost all Hispanic that high school produced more uh uh Mexican American students uh, taking and passing an AP calculus test than uh, uh all other schools and indeed they produced um 27% of all the Mexican Americans in the country who passed AP calculus um and that was a teacher's idea. And other teachers saw the movie, read my book, and began to try the same experiment in their classes, just in welcoming a few more kids in. The kind of, Most schools had rules that said you can't get into AP unless you have a B-plus average and a teacher's recommendation. That kept a lot of kids out of AP who would have done well in AP, and lots of teachers have proven that to be the case. They've opened up those doors, and it's made a big difference. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Let's, and let's pick up on that. You know, you, you bring up your work on, on Jaime Escalante and his amazing work, you know, demonstrating that, you know, if you, if you kid let kids rise to the occasion, they will. Um, this is, you know, you've written a lot about not only Escalante, but sort of views that are aligned with folks like Edie Hirsch and Will Fitzhugh of the Concord Re- Review. Can you talk a little bit about that approach to reform that these folks represent versus, maybe versus is the wrong way to put it, but in the context of the dominant sort of view that many teachers are learning in teacher training schools and, and that are uh, espoused by schools of education? Uh,
2: the, the schools of education, you know, have a different philosophy. They're wanting to ensure that, that teachers are competent, uh, to know the history of education, to know how schools work, to know what they are going, the demands of their jobs are going to be, and particularly have a philosophy. Um, they're very strong on progressive education, which, of course, I, I promote in this book. But they do not give teachers the preparation they need to handle real classrooms, particularly in difficult schools, where a lot of the kids are from low-income families. Uh, that's not a priority. And I think that's a great missed opportunity because what we've seen now in the second uh, movement that I'm talking about, the, the really successful charter schools have taken the challenge of working in an urban and high, uh, urban school with lots of low-income kids. That's been their, that's been their focus. And they have uh, not worried about what philosophy teachers have, but worried about what exactly does that teacher do each day as they open up that class. What is the best way to organize the class? How do you uh, ready your classes so you're ready for any uh, eventuality? Most importantly, how do you turn that class into a place where kids learn, where every kid is called on, where there are exciting questions answered, and where you're preparing those kids for difficult exams? Most of the time in inner-city schools, people are discouraged. They don't think the kids can learn, and so they don't work very hard to help them learn. But in the schools, and the and particularly the charter schools, I'm talking about KIPP, IDEA, several others around the country, they absolutely believe kids from the poorest circumstances can learn at a very high level. They give them more time to learn longer school days. They give them more encouragement, and they don't give up just because a lot of those kids have families that don't have much money.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about in your work on KIPP and that's so notable is that so many of these really successful charter school organizations, in fact, have just taken to training their own teachers. So, you know, whether they're taking folks who don't come from a traditional education background or they're 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 not, they're basically saying we're going to engage in some really heavy on the job training here. And they're launching these high caliber teacher prep programs of their own. Um, any more examples that you can give us, whether from this current book or past book about more t- teacher-driven school reforms that you're excited to see take hold? One
2: thing I found in, in in going deep into the charter schools for this book is the rise of the teacher coach. Now we have teacher coaches in all kinds of schools, regular and charter. Uh, they're supposed to be there to help teachers do well in class, and they'll s- stop by occasionally and see what their teachers doing and make some suggestions but in in organizations like Kip or or Idea uh the coach is really there all the time uh the 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 teacher will give the coach uh their lesson plan for the coming week and they'll have a conversation with it okay uh, some teacher some coaches will ask well can you really do that lesson in 7 minutes can you get it down to 5 minutes which I think would be more useful and so the approach is so more so much more concentrated on every small step uh, in places like the, um, uh, the Uncommon Schools, which are based in the Northeast, another charter organization, they have everything down to such precision that they use in classes in a way I've never seen before. Timers. A teacher has a timer there. They'll give kids five minutes to complete an essay, and then they go on to something else. They have everything down so that no second is wasted, and that is producing in the Uncommon Schools among low-income kids, some of the highest uh, results on AP tests I've ever seen.
1: I got to tell you, there are many days of the week where I feel like I would benefit from a timer just to get through my own day. (laughs) So I don't get get, um, too distracted. Jay, I have one follow-up for you. So, you know, just right now, um, school districts and many charter schools fall, you know, our school districts under themselves, depending on where you are, they are about to receive a lot of money with no strings attached to that money, there's very little that states could say. And, you know, the federal government wants to see certain monies concentrated on learning recovery and on summer enrichment. But given these reforms that you've identified in in many of your works and so that you'd like to see take hold, is there, are there one or two things that you would particularly, maybe it's teacher coaches that you were just talking about, that you would particularly encourage uh, schools and districts to invest in with with this money that is supposed to be for helping kids who have suffered during the pandemic?
2: You know, I have ideas. I'm very, very, uh, uh, um, op- pessimistic that they're going to be done. A lot of money generally just goes into salaries and, and perhaps into pensions and doesn't re- isn't really focused on the way it ought to be. If, if I was the philosopher king and could control this money for all the public school districts, first thing I would look at is longer school days. Um, it is the the, the most uh, important difference between a good charter school and uh, a regular school is the charter school is going to have another at least another hour of time, and that is crucial, particularly for low-income kids who, among other things, need more time to sit there in class and read. Reading, learning to read, is really a matter of putting more time into it, more reading, more reading in which they read with uh, with partners when they when the more reading in which they're. The teacher and they can talk about what they're being read to. Uh, more time would be very useful. And then more money into the kind of training and coaching that I'm talking about, where you said very uh, firm goals for what you're going to do and make sure that you're in contact with every kid. I think the charter schools have shown during the pandemic, the best ones, that they are masters in making sure no one falls through the cracks. They are bears getting, staying in communication with every kid and make sure they're doing their lessons. And if they're not doing the lessons, or are a locked contact, finding a way to get them back in contact.
0: So, Jay, so glad to have you join us. As you know, I'm a founder of Kip's Drive Academy in Atlanta, Georgia. So, always good to have you on and to hear your voice about the great things that the charter schools are doing. Here's a question about the U.S. Department of Education. You know, after decades of covering K-12 schooling in our country... In recent interviews, you've you know voiced some skepticism about the quality and success of policymaking come out of DOE. Could you discuss with our audience some of your observations about the strengths and weaknesses of federal reform efforts uh, in contrast to what you've observed in other states, districts, or even schools?
2: Uh, We've had some great U.S. education secretaries, really capable people in both parties, but uh, their greatness, in my view, only came. Their understanding that what their department was doing wasn't going to help very much; that they were focused on helping individual schools, individual districts get low-income kids up to the next level, find those those kids who were who's had all kinds of potential and were not giving a, giving a chance to to promote it. Um, so, I think over the last, you know, I don't cover the education department. At least I try to avoid doing so. I think it's a big political. Um, Enterprise and some of what they do sounds good, and some of it might even have some um, importance. But not since the um, Race to the Top program, the Obama administration, where they had real money which they got to some of the best charter schools, have I seen the Ed Department from either party do anything that's really important for improving schools?
0: Yeah, I remember when Arnie Duncan uh, was there, later John King. I mean, they used what I believe four billion portions of that to help really push it toward charter schools, but also advanced ideas about teacher accountability and district reform. So um, you're definitely spot on there. Let me go to another question about larger structural changes uh, in American journalism and also with print media. So as print media in particular adapts to struggle um, in a world of internet, and not, uh, electronic journalism, and social media, you know, Would you share your insights and thoughts about the past, present, and future of education journalism and what you think it'll mean for how K-12 education is reported?
2: Well, as you know, Gerard, I've been around a long time. A uh, couple of months, I'll have 50 years at the Washington Post. Um, there's hardly anybody as old as I am at the Washington Post or most newspapers. And I have, you know, I like the old days, but uh, what, the, what uh, the Internet did to widen uh, my ability as a reporter to reach out to all kinds of schools and was phenomenal and, and welcome to me. Um, and uh, for big news workers like mine that have, have tapped into billionaires and other people who have the money, uh, we're doing fine. We can hire lots of people. We are using the new um, uh, tools to widen education coverage. We've got some great reporters, probably more education reporters than we've ever had. But we know that back and down in local papers, people that used to do most of the education reporting, who did the reporting about what's happening in the local schools, that the uh, readers of their newspaper were parents of kids there, that's very, 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 very uh, less than it what once was. Uh, and some local groups that are not part of the government have tried to uh, close that gap, but we've lost a lot of great education, local coverage. We've still got some good at the top, but it's it's a problem, I think, because the big stories, the ones that make money for websites and TV, almost never have anything to do with education.
0: Is it, are there some recommendations you'd give to maybe someone who's listening, who's in a position of power, to at least influence the change you're talking about?
2: Well, um, we have uh, organizations like Chalkbeat, which is mm-hmm. a, 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 series, a, um, a reporting, uh, mostly online facility. That grew out of the new era, run by really young Elizabeth, people like Elizabeth Green, who's about half my age. Um, uh, they've done great work, and they obviously, if there's money out there to provide more um, uh, non-governmental but uh, free uh, journalist coverage of education like that, that would be all to the good. So if you've got money, if the federal, Federals have some money to encourage journalism coverage of education, I think that's the way to go. Um, Uh, Otherwise, uh, we're going to just have to see things work. I'm not capable. I'm not competent to describe how we can get out of this mess. It's not my area of expertise, but we need to do more than we're doing now.
0: Definitely glad, Don, that you raised it because I'm sure someone whose expertise or may know of someone who can do it will will push it along. You know, you've earned a master's degree in East Asian studies as well as writing about uh, China in your earlier uh, career. Several years ago, I had a chance to travel to China uh, and while I was in Beijing, I had a chance to visit the highest performing uh, high school for math uh, in China. And it was just amazing the pipeline of talent from that high school to universities, both public and private, all you know throughout the United States. And it raised for me some questions about competitiveness. Now that we're in the age of you know, COVID-19 and we're looking at reflection points between the relationship between China and the U.S., what are your thoughts on the state of this East-West relationship, and are there any wider impl- uh, implications for uh, America's global competitiveness as it relates well, to in,
2: reform? That's a great question. I've been impatient for a long time about the way this is often covered you know, in, on op-eds and so on. People see this, well, how, are we going to beat the Chinese or are they going to beat us? That's really not the issue. What's nice about China, and I lived there for some time and spent you know, half my life studying it, they're not nearly as warlike as we are. Uh, They have a long history of sort of dodging battles. Um, The the army in China has a far lower social standing than the army in the United States. I don't worry about a war between these two cultures. The Chinese government, the Chinese leadership now, is no longer ideological as it was when I was in the 60s studying government. They're looking for um, uh, making sure business is right. They want to keep their power, but they're not going to fight any wars because they know that was really going to mess up their economy. So we, I think, have to cast aside the, the thought that this is a war and think about what we can do for each other. And what's really interesting about China's reaction to the China, the education thing, is they admire our education system, particularly our universities. They mm-hmm. realize that they haven't produced anybody who's grown in China and worked in China as a scientist who's won a Nobel Prize. Um, the political demands on Um, academics are harmful to them, and you can see them trying to break out of that, both in universities and you see some American teachers, such such as Rafe Esquith in in L.A., who's won several American awards and is very much and who was one of the thought people behind the creation of the KIPP charter schools. They love him. He's a huge star in China. He makes a trip there and people are trying to get into his hotel room. Uh, They want a, a better education for their kids that includes thinking and projects and the kind of imaginative teaching that goes on in the U.S. So that's, a, that's a, something that's good to think about.
0: You mentioned a point about what they're interested in, particularly for higher ed. And when I raised the question about, you know, what are you doing differently? You know, one of the principals I've spoken to, laughed. he said, we're doing better than you on math and science in some areas. That's great. He says, but what America has that we wish we did is creativity and exactly. how you approach life. He said, we have to ultimately send our students there to learn it. But he says, you guys have something that we just don't.
2: Yep. And I think that's in, in many ways a, a political problem. Creative people uh, who use that freedom can get squashed in, Correct. in ways they would not in our country.
0: Well, Kara mentioned that you have a new book. Um, would you mind reading a passage for us?
2: Certainly. Um, this is toward of the beginning when I sort of lay out what I've found that I think is most interesting. Um, I, I, you know, at thinking about what we should do about our schools, particularly now that we're heading into this new era, I think we should focus more on teachers and principals. Many of the best educators I have met developed their remarkable methods for many of the same reasons. In the classroom, they discovered how low the standards were that they were asked to meet and how much more potential their students had than was assumed. On their own, they found unusual and often daring solutions to their school's problems. They decided which programs would work for them and which would not. They passed what they had learned on to other teachers. Sometimes they created their own schools uh, to accelerate the change. We should tell our educators it is okay to be different. They know their students better than the legislatures, the school boards, scholars, political partisans, and commentators like me trying to tell them what to do. Powerful people won't stop influence, inflicting their master plans on schools. That's going to keep happening. But we should leave room for simple but potentially far-reaching ideas that may begin with just a few teachers uh, sharing their frustrations while sipping coffee after class. <laughs>
1: this former teacher really enjoyed that passage. So thank you so much, Jay Matthews listeners. Um you know him. This has been Jay Matthews of the Washington Post. Uh we're so appreciative of your time today and can't wait to have you back.
2: Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Gerard
0: My tweet of the week is from Anne Egalate, who is a professor, also someone who joined us Uh, Some months ago, and this is from uh, the Wallace Foundation, April 8th, quote, how principles affect students and schools, a systematic synthesis of two decades of research. And it was funded by the Wallace Foundation, who has funded a lot of great research through scholars and others to talk about principles and particularly what role as principals and assistant principals play in improving schools and student outcomes. Um, There is a, a webinar she already hosted. And I'm pretty sure on her website, she will have a link to it for those of us who could not watch it. She's definitely one of the uh, best scholars in the country on some of these uh, subjects and always glad to support her work.
1: Yeah, she's fantastic. So thank you. And, and one of the things I have to say, I appreciate most about her work, oh, well, about Anna, is that she um, she can explain it in a way <laughs> that, that normal people understand. So, and I think I'm I'm excited to, Um, you know, to dig into this uh, research that they've done because, um, well, listen, it speaks to a lot of what we talked about with Jay Matthews, right? The power of principals and teachers. So I want to see what they've found. And Gerard, next week, we will be back with Arnold Rampersad, who is Stanford University professor and biographer of Langston Hughes. So always looking forward to that. Gerard, until next week, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. And I look forward to being back with you. The family looks forward to being back with you. Here here. Take care.